how about in the middle of yet another frenetic news cycle, we do something a little different? Go deep on a couple of policy stories and turn to you, our listeners, to give us even more context. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And this week, we are going to follow up on a few things we've been covering on this show, including where the recovery from Hurricane Maria stands in Puerto Rico. And we start with more on a story from last week's show on food deserts and what a lack of access to fresh produce can mean for wellness. High-end communities had way more access to fresh produce than communities of color and low-income communities had. The high-income areas had 14 times more access to even frozen vegetables. That's Lauren Ornelas, executive director of the Food Empowerment Project. And there's a part in our conversation that didn't make it to air but piqued our interest. Grocery stores are actually vacating these communities and placing restrictive deeds, um, preventing grocery stores from moving in for up to 15 years. Teenagers who are 15 years old have never had a grocery store in their community. Restrictive deeds, also called restrictive covenants. What are they and what do they mean for grocery stores? Well, let's start with what happens when a supermarket, often an anchor of a shopping area, leaves town. For Pam Bricker, it was the Safeway store in downtown Greeley, Colorado. Oh, well, it was very handy, you know, working downtown for me to be able to stop there and pick up things on the way home. But then, in 2014, it closed after nearly 60 years in business. I don't even know that they gave a full month's notice before um, the store closed. In a statement released at the time, Safeway said, quote, For more than a year, we evaluated the store extensively and looked at options to improve its performance. Ultimately, our business analysis indicated that we needed to cease operations at that location. It was the only grocery store in downtown Greeley, a city of 100,000 people north of Denver. Bricker, who directs Greeley's Downtown Development Authority, had a mission, find a new grocery store for the vacant space. So that is exactly what we did. We went out on an offer uh, for that building. However, the contingency came back that we would be unable to operate any other type of grocery store for at least a period of 20 years. Yep. No grocery store in that spot for 20 years. And it all comes down to two words, restrictive covenant. Tanya Marsh teaches law at Wake Forest University. So a restrictive covenant is just a promise where the landlord promises the tenant, in this case a grocery store, that they're not going to lease other space to competing uses. Basically, a grocery store's lease will say the landlord can't rent the space to another grocer. Grocery stores don't want another one next door. And grocery stores are big clients, so landlords listen. Their routine. There's hardly a grocery store in the United States that does not benefit from these kinds of restrictive covenants. They're just standard in the industry. But when stores close, critics like Lauren Ornelas say these restrictive covenants can lead to food deserts, which brings us back to where we started. And for more on this from a grocery store's perspective, we have David Rogers. He heads DSR Marketing Systems, which conducts location analysis for grocery retailers. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you explain why a grocery store or chain would would want to have a restrictive covenant in place when a store closes? If they have uh, sister stores, which they still operate within a distance of, for example, two or three miles, they may wish to protect their sales out of concern that the space they're vacating would go to a competitor and have an impact on them. 
we've heard obviously from you know activists and critics who say, well, but the restrictive covenant can leave behind a food desert. I mean, is that something that that stores think through? That that is an issue. Everyone's very aware these days about the political significance of food deserts, but there's other issues of competition they're very concerned about. You know, I wonder when we're thinking about kind of retailers and large grocery stores, is there a way they could see food deserts as an opportunity? I think particularly as the industry is trending towards a somewhat smaller store size, their interest in areas like food deserts is increasing because a smaller box, which is less costly to operate, would be more desirable for them. Can you kind of walk me through the factors and the thinking that go into picking a site and and the kind of neighborhood someone operates in? I'd imagine that's a very complex calculation. What's involved? It is. A, a lot's involved. I mean, the, um, the site characteristics itself, the co-tenants, is there adequate parking? How much competition? Where is it located? If the area is coming up or going down or stagnant? And clearly, cost of rents is a big issue, you know, for a supermarket. You know, you do location analysis and research for these companies. And I guess I'm curious, when your clients are coming to you thinking about 2018 and going forward, what are they worried about? What's really top of mind for them? Top of mind right now is Amazon. And I think it's overblown. Now, if if you are a uh, upmarket retailer, that serves the Amazon Prime type of customer, you are concerned about the fact that Amazon can now integrate Whole Foods with their Prime uh, memberships, and they can really serve the more affluent customer quite well. But if you are a retailer that's serving uh, average incomes or lower incomes, I don't see how Amazon is is as, as great a threat. Well, there's been some concern, to to get back to the food desert question, that sort of the growth of online shopping for groceries might contribute to food deserts. What we've not discussed is that the other major impact now taking place in the U.S. grocery industry is is the growth of the limited assortment retailers like Aldi and Lidl and save a lot Their stores may be 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet in size. So they can slot into... Uh, a lot of sites, even those in, in food deserts. Those small box retailers, I think, have the potential to contribute to solving the problem of the food desert, as long as it's profitable for them. Well, David Rogers, president of DSR Marketing Systems, thank you so much. Thank you. What's the situation in your neighborhood? Has a store closed? And if so, what has that meant for you and how you shop? We want to hear about it. So get in touch. You can email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org or leave us a message on our voicemail. 1-800-648-5114. Another story we're following up on this week is mental health parity. Ten years ago, Congress passed a law that says insurers can't discriminate between coverage offered for mental health and physical health. But as we heard in our last show, psychiatrists are less likely to take insurance than all healthcare professionals, in part because insurers pay them less. Lindsay Bryan Podvin heard that and reached out. She's a social worker and therapist based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
We chatted about the other side of the story, the difficulties as a therapist of working with insurance companies. So in order for a clinician to be paneled with an insurance provider, you submit a lengthy application that includes your provider ID number, your license number, your transcripts, your work history, all of that good stuff. And then the insurance panel either says, yes, we will put you on our panel, meaning people can go see you, they can, and then we will pay you for the services that were rendered. Um, So that's what being on panel means. It means being an approved provider, essentially. And I gather that you figured, okay, let me let me try and do this so that, you know, people who have insurance can see you and not have to pay out of pocket, right? Exactly. So I applied to over a dozen different insurance panels, and only one of them said, yes, we will put you on our panel. The rest of them essentially said, thanks, but no thanks, of the responses that I did get um, were saturated. We don't need any more therapists in your geographic area. You know, it's sort of amazing to think that that these are the hoops that you are jumping through trying to provide services as a licensed social worker. What, What does that tell you, do you think, about what your patients or prospective patients are going through? Absolutely. That it is barrier after barrier after barrier of trying to get this care. So like I mentioned, I applied for over a dozen panels with phone, fax, email, back and forth. And by the time I did get on panel with the one place that I'm on panel with, it was a six-month period. So that means that I had to kind of carve out this time in my work week every week to kind of dedicate to calling and chasing around these insurance companies. So if you imagine that you're a person with mental health concerns, you've got crippling anxiety or depression, being on the phone is really tough, they're speaking in jargon, the first time someone says, oh, you've got the wrong number, hang up and call this place, it's going to be a smack in the face and it's going to be really hard to overcome that. Where does this all leave you as a social worker in private practice? I mean, in terms of who you can afford to treat? I can afford to treat people who have the insurance that I take, and I can afford to treat people who pay out of pocket. I do offer a sliding fee scale, but even then, you're still limiting yourself to the people who can afford to pay. So for sure, it makes it so that people who want to go into private practice may stay elsewhere because you're you're not in as big of a risk as you are when you go out alone. Lindsay Brian Podvin, thank you so much for calling us and talking to us about this. Thank you so much, Lizzie. We want to hear from you about anything we cover on the show. You can email us like Lindsay did, we're weekend at marketplace.org, or leave us a voicemail, 1 800 648 5114. I know you know the phrase, let's do the numbers. And here on the weekends, since the markets are closed, we like to use numbers to take a look at the news. Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Eliza Mills have got us covered. And warning, you might be a little hungry by the time they're done. All right, Tony, we'll start with you. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 0.0041. That's how many bitcoins it takes to pay for KFC's $20 bucket of fried chicken. KFC's Canada branch is allowing customers to pay using the cryptocurrency. And tracking prices on Facebook Live. 1300 
That's a percent Domino's stock price has grown since 2010. It far outpaces its competitors in pizza and fast food. And given how savvy the pizza chain has been about online orders, it seems fair to compare it to tech stocks. Domino's has grown faster than Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Only Netflix grew more. Four. That's how many new flavors of Diet Coke will be hitting stores this month. Diet Coke is doing a major rebrand, and if you like LaCroix, it may look familiar. The new flavors are fruity, and the cans have been redesigned. Diet Coke says they're looking to attract millennials who are, quote, thirstier than ever for adventures. Mmm, adventures. Nummy. been tempted to just quit your job on the spot? Go out in a blaze of glory? Okay, there are probably more graceful ways to resign, and we are going to talk about them with Allison Green of Ask a Manager, who joins us every month to talk about navigating life at work. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's say you have decided it is time to move on. You want to quit your job gracefully. Can it be done without burning bridges? And if so, how? Yes, absolutely it can. It's really normal to move on from jobs. It's a regular part of doing business, and if you handle it professionally, it shouldn't burn any bridges. So handling it professionally means you give a reasonable amount of notice, you spend your remaining time there working to leave your projects in good shape so that whoever comes in after you can see where things stand, and you help with a smooth transition during your notice period. You don't slack off since you're leaving. If you do that, you're meeting your obligations. I will say it's true that some managers take resignations personally, like it's some sort of Mm -hmm. betrayal. That's not reasonable. You're only going to see it in dysfunctional environments. But I do sometimes hear from people whose bosses handle resignations really badly. They become bitter, they become hostile. But most of the time, resigning is a normal part of having a job. The question of when to quit is obviously really important. You mentioned the words, a reasonable period of time, you know, two weeks notice was at one point the standard. I want to read you a comment from one of our listeners, Maria Kinneman, who wrote us to say, I've yet to find a solution, but a tip I will give is I don't give more time than needed if you can afford not to work. I gave a four-week notice the first time I left a job, and it was enough time to stick me with heavy projects no one wanted and enough time to feel awkwardness on a daily basis. Who wants to prolong a breakup? Keep it as short as possible. Um, Is there some truth to her point there? Yeah, I think there definitely can be. In most fields, the expectation is that you're going to give two weeks notice. There's some fields and some jobs where maybe the expectation is is a little longer, three or four weeks. Being expected to do more than that is pretty unusual. Some people choose to do more than that, but it's a personal decision, not something that, that should be imposed on you by your employer. To Maria's point, I think whether it makes sense to choose to give more time depends on what your employer is like. I mean, in some cases, they might treat departing employees really well and ensure that your final weeks there are great ones and they're respectful of whatever time you give them. In other cases, you can really end up being taken advantage of, which sounds like that's what happened to Maria. Well, what about if they want you to stay on longer or train your replacement, uh, you know, keep answering questions once you're out the door? What, what do you do with all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So one thing to know is that the purpose of the two-week notice period isn't that it's for your employer to hire your replacement in that time. Sometimes I hear people saying, oh, I feel guilty. I feel like I need to stay longer because it's going to take them so long to interview candidates. And I want to be here to train the person who replaces me. 
The idea with the two-week notice period is not that that will be enough time to interview people and hire someone and have them start while you're still there. The idea of the two weeks is that it's time to wrap up your work and leave behind information about your projects. So you shouldn't get guilted into staying until they can hire someone. That's, that's not how it's intended to work. With answering questions before you leave, I get a startling number of letters from people who are still being contacted by former coworkers or former bosses from jobs they left a few months ago um, who still have questions for wow. them. It's good form to be willing to answer a question or two once you're gone. You know, what is the password for X? Or do you know where we can find a particular file? But it shouldn't be more than that. And really, one of the best things you can do during your notice period is to create documentation on the sorts of things people might want to ask you after you're gone, like passwords or contacts, and and make sure people know you're leaving that and where they can find it. And then that way, if you do get contacted, hopefully you can just refer them to that document. Okay, so all of these scenarios we've been talking about, you know, do have this notice period or kind of a process in place. Uh, Some people obviously quit in, you know, the proverbial place of glory or they resign on the spot. We actually have a listener, Catherine Teshra, who is joining us on the phone because she had a somewhat similar situation in her first job. Um, Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Do you want to tell us what happened? Yeah, so... I had been in the job about six months. It was my first job right out of college. And every summer, my parents would go to the beach and we would try to join them. And so I had asked my boss, um, the features editor, if I could have the time off. I knew it would be unpaid uh, because I hadn't been there for long. And she said yes. So the day before, I reminded her that I would be out for a week. And she said, no, you can't go. The city editor is out. Now, I have no idea what the city editor has to do with the features desk, but apparently it was very important. So I appealed to the managing editor, and he sided with her. And my then-husband said, well, you know, you've got to choose between the family and your job. And I said, well, that's pretty easy. And I quit right there on the spot. Wow. So what happened? You just walked out the door? Uh, yeah, cleaned out my desk and walked out the door. And didn't look back. Allison, what would you have done? And also, it kind of sounds like Catherine's bosses were being unreasonable. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's pretty horrible. I mean, what the bosses did, not what Catherine did. You had vacation plans. You'd gotten it pre-approved. They should have honored that, unless it was a true emergency. I mean, maybe like once in a decade, something might happen where you really do need to ask someone to change plans like that. But when that happens, you apologize profusely to the person and you throw yourself on their mercy. It doesn't sound like that's what happened. So I don't think she was wrong to quit over that. People don't always have the luxury of doing that, of course. But if she felt she was able to do it, more power to her. I mean, I I suspect that this wasn't the first sign of dysfunction that she Mm -hmm. saw there because you don't generally see this sort of thing happening somewhere that's otherwise well-managed and high-functioning. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Looking back on it, Catherine, um, do you still feel happy with your decision? I do. Um, We had a great vacation, and I came back and ended up getting a really good job with a great employer, and it took a while to get back into my field, which was journalism, but yeah, I, I have no regrets. Thank you for telling us your story. Sure, you're welcome. Allison, I want to talk about sort of impromptu resignations in general. Um, There are all sorts of reasons for them, for, you know, people taking an ethics stand or, you know, one day you just snap. Any tips for the quitting on the spot moment? 
Yeah. I think if it is not something like taking a stand on something that's very important ethically to you, if it's, I just can't stand being here anymore. My boss is driving me crazy. I can't spend another minute with these people. If it's that, I would really encourage people to try to give two weeks. You know, you can do it that day. You can have the resignation conversation right then if you're really sure you want to do it. But give two weeks because it is considered such a professional standard that typically if you don't do it, it is going to burn the bridge. And, and that means you might not get a good reference and it might impact your reputation. So if you can give two weeks, I would do it. I would also say maybe don't do it that day. If you can hold off, go home, think about it, sleep on it. Sometimes people change their mind. What about the question of references? You know, if you are leaving a job and it wasn't the greatest fit for you and, you know, sure, maybe a potential new employer will contact the people you want them to contact, but someone doing their due diligence may contact everybody. Um, How do you handle that? Yeah, I think to the extent that feels possible for you, you're always better off taking the high ground. Try to preserve the bridge if you can. It's not always an option, but if you can, it will probably make your life easier in the future. Sometimes people think, well, I just won't offer up this particular manager as a reference. And sometimes that works. But sometimes they'll contact whoever happens to be on your resume or the next job that you're applying for will be with someone who knows your old boss and will just reach out informally. So if you feel like you have the option to leave in a way that's professional and reasonably amicable, it's a favor to yourself to do it. We got a comment sort of about the protocol of leaving um, from our listener, Christina Ortiz. Typically, when someone leaves, they send out a goodbye and thanks email. But I think it's important to give people something tangible to let them know you appreciate any time you spent together. Good or bad, you learn something from everyone you work with, and it's worth acknowledging and being grateful for the lessons and experience that interacting with them provided. You know, she she does bring up this really good point of, you know, not just the goodbye, I'm out of here, here's my Gmail note, but but what should you do? Are are you a someone who comes down in favor of the handwritten note or the food you bring in or kind of where do you fall on that line? I love the note. I don't think you need to do gifts or food, although if that is your style, there's no reason you shouldn't. But I've always found the nicest thing you can do, especially with your boss, is to tell them what you got out of working with them. It's an especially nice gesture, I think, to give your boss a note or a card telling them what you learned from them or what you appreciated about their management, that can really cement the relationship at a time when, you, when you're walking away and make them more likely to be a resource to you in the future. Allison Green, who runs the site Ask a Manager, thank you so much. Thank you. Got a question for Allison? You can email us at weekend at marketplace.org. Leave us a voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. And if you're listening to this via podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. Staying with the world of work, if you have quit your job and you're looking for that dream career, maybe something outdoors, in the sun, that requires you to drink a lot of good wine, we have got a story for you. It's part of our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. Last time you heard about how to be an astronaut, this time, how to be a winemaker. My name is Elizabeth Vienna, and I'm the winemaker and general manager at Chimney Rock Winery in Napa Valley. I would say that one of the first things that you need if you're interested in being a winemaker is being an analytical thinker, and you have to enjoy science. A lot of concepts of biology, chemistry, physics, and math are involved. 
It's great if you have an artistic component to your personality because there is a creative aspect of wine. And I think the most important component, in my view, is passion for what you do. I think there's a little bit of a myth that it's a very romantic, sort of glamorized job, but it is actually very physically demanding, and you really have to work hard. There's a lot of different paths to becoming a winemaker. You could go to school and study it as an undergraduate, or you could get a graduate degree if you have a background in, in the sciences. So a chemical engineer could transition into winemaking, or a biologist could transition into winemaking. And that was my path. You could also just get into winemaking by working in it. I certainly have friends who started working in a cellar and slowly built a career as a winemaker just working in the industry. There are several programs in the country where you can actually study viticulture or enology. I got my master's at UC Davis. That was my path in viticulture and enology. Once you've got the academic background or even before you do that you do internships at a winery you can get an internship in the cellar or in the lab or in the vineyards and you want to try to get internships that are as well-rounded as possible so that you really cover the different aspects of winemaking Oh, you have to drink a lot of wine. That's one of the most important parts. You really have to keep perspective and make sure that you're tasting wines from all over, not just from the area that you're making wine in. I find it really helpful to be in tasting groups. You learn to taste critically that way. And I always laugh because I think winemakers can actually take the fun out of any wine. We love to dissect wine and try to find flaws or try to find the imperfections. There's never dull moment in winemaking. So when the grapes are harvested in the fall, it's go time. It's super high energy. We're out there in the vineyards in the morning. Then we're crushing grapes. And all of the decisions made at that time are really going to determine what the wines of that vintage are like. Then winter comes around and your wines are now in barrel. And now you're traveling around the country doing winemaker dinners and maybe you're working on pruning in the vineyards and then the spring comes around and you're working on blending your new wines and you're planning for harvest. You're never just at a desk, you're always inside, outside and if you like being outdoors, it's a great profession. I think every wine is special. Every wine comes from a vintage that was different and unique, and that's kind of what is so romantic and beautiful about wine. But I would say that there are vintages that we become more attached to because maybe they're tied to events in our lives. A vintage like 2017, we had fires in Napa Valley. I'll never forget that because it, it tied to a really important experience as a person. Being a woman in the wine industry is just like any other field that is male-dominated. I was very fortunate that I had a lot of great mentors, both male and female. You, I would say, probably have to work doubly hard, but it is changing just like every other field. And, you know, when I was at UC Davis getting my master's, the ratio of men to women was 50-50. Like every other field, women are progressing and doing extremely well in winemaking. That was Elizabeth Vienna, winemaker at Chimney Rock Winery in Napa Valley. 
And this story was produced by Eliza Mills. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. And that music you hear is a little clue about our next story. In the age of apps and on-demand media, it's gotten a lot harder to get people to tune in to scheduled programming. You have to be creative, which is what the team behind the app HQ Trivia has done. It's a trivia game show for your phone, but you play live against hundreds of thousands of people during two scheduled games a day. Digital producer Sarah Menendez is breaking HQ Trivia down for us with five things you need to know. Take it away, Sarah. The first thing you need to know is that it's a startup. It was founded by the creators of Vine and launched in August. Currently, it's backed by Venture Capital and it's seeking another round of funding. Right now, there's no ads on the game, but it's pretty clear that there probably will be in the future. There's some pretty obvious spots where you could fit some ads in there or have sponsored content or product placements in the questions. So look for that in the future. But the big draw of HQ is the jackpot, which brings us to... The second thing you need to know is that you're probably not going to get rich playing this game. HQ is free, but you can make money if you get every question right. Typically, the cash prize is about $2,000, but that pot is split up between all the winners. So if you won, there's a chance that a lot of other people did too, and so you'll probably only end up with like three bucks. And even if you do win, you can't cash out until you've made about 20 bucks on HQ, and then you can cash out to your PayPal. The promise of even a small prize has a lot of people using the app. So what's the third thing to know? HQ is growing fast. On January 7th, it broke a million players, 1.2 million to be exact, whereas the Sunday before it had 800,000 players on at the same time. It recently expanded to Android, so there'll probably be more users now. Depending on how big the pot is, there'll probably be more players. And all those players can cause some issues. That's the fourth thing you need to know. It's having trouble scaling with all those new players. The tech is really bad. It glitches all the time. Questions don't even show up. Sometimes you tap and it doesn't answer. The video is like constantly lagging and pixelated. I've been on really good fast Wi-Fi and the quality of the video still isn't good. But that's not exactly driving people away yet. Why? Maybe because of this fit thing. Last thing you need to know about HQ is that it's goofy and it's fun. The hosts are kind of corny. If you know HQ, you know Scott, the main host. The internet loves him and loves to hate him. A little bit of both. Another fun thing about HQ is the chat box. It's just always on some random stuff, so it's really fun to watch that happen. That was Marketplace's digital producer and HQ maven, Sarah Menendez.
Last month, we broadcast a special show from Puerto Rico. And while we were there, we spent time with crews working to restore electricity. A lot of cruise ships haven't been pulling in here because the businesses are closed, so that means no one can go to work. There is a lot of damage from what I've been seeing. That was Johnny Price from Con Edison, the utility in New York, who was overseeing crews in San Juan. Power is key for the island's economic recovery, and we wanted to check back in on the power situation and where things stand now. So we've got Francis Robles from The New York Times. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Can you explain what we know about the power situation in Puerto Rico right now and and how accurate that is? There was a really big development in the power situation right before New Year's, which was that they finally told the public how many people have power. All along, they've been offering this number, this percent of generation, which kind of didn't really mean anything to anybody. And so what we know now is that they're at about 60% of the customers have power. Uh, But even that, there's a really interesting uh, asterisk. They said 55 – this is on the night before New Year's. They said 55% of the customers who can receive power have power. I was like, what? (laughs) Of the people who can receive power. So what does that tell you? That tells you that there's another universe of people who cannot receive power, you know, whose homes were damaged. And so I say it's 60% of the customers, you know, with an asterisk. Yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. You know, when when my team was on the island, we were in Atio, uh, you know, which had very damaged lines. So I guess... Is this one of the reasons it's so hard to get an accurate reading because you have to be able to physically get power that's being generated? Right. So, for example, I live in South Florida, and when Hurricane Irma hit, we were sitting there watching all our neighbors get electricity in, like, one house, the next house, the next house. And so finally everybody was lit except us. And so we called the power company, and they said that the wind vane had broken on our roof and that it was our responsibility to fix it and that the electric could not be hooked up until that was fixed. So that's basically the universe of people that they're talking about in Puerto Rico who have some damage to their own homes that is their responsibility to fix fix who still can't get power. And I have not been able to get an answer from anybody as to how many people that is. You know, it has been a long time since the storm. How would you describe the level of trust that people have in both the island's government and the federal government right now? Oh, I don't know that there was ever trust. So let's Mm. start with that. And certainly as the days ticked by, uh, certainly I would say that the level of trust is negative zero. You know, whatever information the government gives is looked at terribly suspiciously. They really just don't believe anything that they say about power generation, about the number of customers, about the number of power poles, about about anything. And part of that is frankly uh, kind of a pattern that we've seen in the Puerto Rican government where they say things that are – I'm not going to say untrue, you know, but they're kind of like oddly true or like true with an asterisk, like I said before. Mm. You know, when when leptospirosis, a, a disease that I don't even know if I'm pronouncing correctly, when that had come out, the governor very emphatically said, you know, there are no confirmed cases of leptospirosis. And everybody's kind of scratching their heads like, well, what do you mean? You know, we just came from the hospital and, and met a bunch of people. Well, yeah, there was no confirmed cases because it oh. takes two weeks for the lab test to come back from the from the labs. So 
everything after so many months of those kinds of responses, you know, everybody kind of shrugs and say, I, I believe when that there's power when I turn on this light switch and the power comes on. Well, that takes us a little bit to, to talking about the death toll and the official numbers and then the numbers that you and others have been reporting on. And one reason I bring that up is that the death toll can fall so unequally, particularly on the most vulnerable communities. In terms of what you have been able to report out, what does both the number of people who died and, and where those deaths are being reported tell us about who was most impacted by the hurricane? The elderly, there's no question that the elderly were the most impacted. Uh, the deaths of people in their 70s, increased 80s, uh, people in nursing homes, the number of people who died in nursing homes jumped in September and October. Uh, so basically people who, you know, maybe they didn't have that many years left in them anyway. You know, they had chronic illnesses, uh, that they had diabetes, a lot. there were a lot of diabetes deaths. That vulnerable population just couldn't, hack the months without electricity, you know, without oxygen, without reliable medical care. Francis Swoblis from The New York Times, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And you can check out our Puerto Rico coverage where you'll read about businesses making the most of the disaster and how farmers are coping. Just go to marketplace.org and search for Economy of Disaster. heard the news this week that North Korea will be sending a delegation of athletes to the Olympics in South Korea next month. Certainly a big diplomatic deal. But there's also news about hacking. Yes, hacking the Olympics. An unidentified group tried to take over dozens of computers involved with the upcoming games. And that means the digital protections for everyone involved in the Olympics are getting more complex and expensive. To talk us through it all, we have Molly Wood, the host of Marketplace Tech. Welcome. Thanks, Lizzie. Glad to be here. Okay, can you walk me through what happened in South Korea exactly? Yeah. So what happened was a pretty, uh, uh, again, according to security experts, a pretty concentrated hacking operation. It was aimed at airports and government workers, Olympic employees, and it came as so many hacking efforts do in the form of basically a phishing email. Uh, the hackers, cleverly enough, spoofed an email so that it looked like it came from South Korea's Counterterrorism Council, which I think we can mm. all agree is pretty clever. Um, and if people who received the email clicked the link in the email, it downloaded a program that created an encrypted channel, and that let hackers install new programs, hack the computer, gather information, do whatever it is that they were intending to do. Um, and people think that because of the sophistication, that the motive is to get intelligence about organizations that are involved in the Olympics, uh, and that it may be the work of a nation state. Well, that raises this question. This seems like a very sophisticated attack, this idea of a nation state um, doing this. That, that's far and beyond the idea of a, a rogue hacker or someone who wants your personal info. Is there a way for the organizers, the International Olympic Committee, to, to protect against something like this? 
Well, you know what's really interesting about the nation state versus other hackers thing is that it may be more sophisticated, but it also could be less dangerous if, for example, Hmm. you have, you know, operatives who just want to keep tabs on everything that's happening, who just don't want to have any surprises. Uh, That's very different from a concerted attack that could lock up the entire Olympics infrastructure in exchange for a big payout. That is not to say that all hacking attempts are not serious. They're all very serious, but it's sort of... It's the caution, I guess, is all of the employees involved, all the organizations involved have to take the exact same security precautions, no matter who is trying to attack them. But the fact is, only one user can bring down the entire organization. And so most security approaches at this point are just as much about containment as they are about prevention. The idea that if somebody gets in, uh, they can't they can't do that much damage. This is an incredibly complex thing. You know, you have the organizers in South Korea, you have the IOC, and this is a multi-billion dollar event. Who is on the hook for protection and for cybersecurity? Yeah, it, you know, the IT infrastructure for the Olympics is unbelievable. They essentially create a, a mini internet. You know, they create wow. an entire Yeah, it's hundreds of servers, 850 servers at the Rio Games, 15,000 computers. I mean, it's just an unbelievably large infrastructure, not including the protection. Both the International Olympic Committee and the host country, to some extent, are on the hook for the cost. And it's unclear how much they actually budget, but we know that South Korea has budgeted at least $12 million just for cybersecurity. And the IOC in particular is pretty hardcore about this. They're very aggressive in terms of cybersecurity, and they were widely praised for having an incredibly successful Rio Games. Um, The London 2012 Olympics were when the cybersecurity threat, I think, really became real for the IOC. They fended off hundreds of attacks every day. They reported after the Games millions of attacks on their network. Well, so you talk about the success in London and Rio. Um, What are they thinking about in terms of protection and what have they learned from those past events? So they set up this network probably years in advance and they test the bejesus out of it, for lack of a better way to put that. Uh, I think in Rio there were 8,000 hours of testing, of attempts to break into that network. And then, like I mentioned, you have to sort of accept that there is going to be an intrusion at some point. And so I think the focus increasingly is turning to, like I said, that containment idea. You know, if somebody breaks in, that they're only able to ransack the living room and they can't get to the rest of the house. If you're a regular old person going to the Olympics, um, should you think about this? Oh, absolutely. We often caution people to be very, very cautious about what they do on public networks, right? Like if you go to Starbucks, don't do your banking. I think when you go to the Olympics, you have to imagine that this is basically the world's biggest Starbucks and everyone there (laughs) is trying to hack you. Like you have got to be either using a security token or getting a text that gives you a code so that you can log into your email after you enter your password. Because anybody with an Olympic credential, anybody with any kind of access at all is a target. Molly Wood, host of Marketplace Tech. Thank you. My pleasure.
One thing we like to do here is ask people from the world of the arts, whether they're actors, writers, musicians, whatever, about their experiences with work and money, what shaped them, and what they've learned along the way. Here's one from 2016. Hi, I'm Moby, and uh, I'm a musician, and I guess now I'm an author, sort of, as well. So first question, in the next life, what would your career be? Either I would lead whitewater rafting trips through the Grand Canyon, or I would be the first democratically elected dictator of the entire world. (laughs) Those are two very different careers. Yeah, or maybe both at the same time. What is the hardest part about your job that no one knows? One is how solitary it is. And I'm not really complaining, but I do envy people who work in more gregarious environments because, you know, the things that I focus on, whether it's writing or making music, uh, I do exclusively by myself. And so I think of, you know, musicians who are in bands or people who are comedy writers and comedy shows or anything that's more collaborative and gregarious. And I sort of envy them being able to work in a convivial environment as opposed to, you know, sad, isolated, you know, ascetic me stuck in my studio. (laughs) Do you feel like when you get to collaborate with other musicians and stuff that it kind of scratches that itch of teamwork or is it still kind of a solitary um, endeavor? One of the other consequences of working in a very solitary way is that when you actually do encounter other people, you don't really know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And I'll have this experience with my girlfriend sometimes. Like I'll spend the entire day working by myself and by six o'clock realized I haven't spoken to another person all day and I'll see my girlfriend and I will almost have forgotten how to speak. Wow. So I'll need like like a couple of minutes of, you know, so re-acclimation to remember what it's like to actually be in the presence of real people. <laughs> when did you realize music could be an actual paying career? I think it would have been around 1989, which is actually the beginning of my book, Porcelain. And I was only making $3,000 a year but I was living in an abandoned factory with no running water, and I was living in a crack neighborhood, but I made enough money from DJing that I could afford to pay the security guards at this abandoned factory $50 a month to look the other way. Wow. And I was spending around 5 to $10 a week on food. So at that point, I learned that I could have, like, music could be a paying career, even though it was only paying me $3,000 a year. What is your most prized possession? I have this weird lamp that looks like a squirrel. And I bought it, I don't know, 15 years ago in a junk shop. I then had this crazy house in upstate New York. It was like my degenerate party palace. And it was on 65 acres. And it was three houses all totaled. The main house was around 12,000 square feet. And I built a disco in the house and built a spa in the house. And it was where my friends from New York would hang out and just have all sorts of alcohol-fueled degeneracy. And then I got sober, and I sold this compound, and the only thing I took with me from the compound was this squirrel lamp. And this squirrel lamp kind of goes with me everywhere. I mean, I feel a little bit like Steve Martin in The Jerk, you know, like when all he needs is his thermos when he's leaving his palace. So my equivalent of Steve Martin in The Jerk with his thermos is me with my little strange squirrel lamp. Um, But what is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? The one purchase that I do regret was at one point right before I got sober and maybe I shouldn't say this because the last time I talked about drugs publicly I lost my life insurance policy. I did buy way too much cocaine but in a way it wasn't regrettable because I remember looking up 
in my apartment at five o'clock in the morning and my apartment was filled with people who were only hanging out there to do the cocaine that I had bought. And I realized that my life had, was just terrible. You know, I was surrounded with these awful people who I knew were only there for the, you know, the thousand dollars of cocaine that I had bought. So it was disgusting and regrettable, but it also helped me to get sober. So I can't regret it too much. What advice do you wish someone gave you before you started your career? I think the only advice would be, you know, in the course of your life, you're going to make a ton of mistakes. Just accept that it most likely is going to end up in a good place. Because in the course of my life, I've made countless mistakes. I mean, huge, you know, career-destroying, soul-shattering mistakes. But the cumulative effect of all those mistakes is me as I sit here right now. And I'm actually quite grateful for the life that I have. And I'm really happy with the perspective that I have. And I wouldn't have this life in perspective without all of those mistakes. That quiz was produced by Raghu Manavalan, and you can listen to past quiz takers, Roxanne Gay, The Killers, Imagine Dragons, and Gucci Mane. Just go to our website, marketplace.org. Coming up on Marketplace Weekend next week, it's almost a year since President Trump's inauguration. We check in with our three mayors from Dalton, Georgia, Gillette, Wyoming, and Corvallis, Oregon, and get their takes on the first 12 months of the Trump presidency. Plus, there's been an explosion in the education world to get more and more high school students to take college-level classes. Is this just a trend, or does it actually translate into changes in our economy? Next week, we take a look. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. And Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.